to share in person or make a recording that will be included in a future platform. Today's reader is Ann Baker, a longtime West member and a part of the chorus. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. As Anne lights our community candle, I invite those of you with candles at home to light yours and for everyone to join in our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. We have for you all today a video from Laura Steele and our senior leader, Casey Slack, about Wes's pledge campaign this year. Hi, Wes. I'm Laura Steele. I'm representing the Stewardship Committee, along with board members who are contributing their talents and their time and their energy in a big way this year. Thank you to Trang and Sarah Morris, Mirka, Christine, and Emily Newman from the CRC. We're launching our pledge campaign this year in a different way. As you can see, I'm here with Casey, and we're going to have a little chat about our pledge campaign and Wes. So to begin with, hi, Casey. Hey, Laura. Welcome. Casey, we have a visual image in and a theme this year. Power up for the future. What does the theme mean for you? Yeah. So. Powering up for me, this is about engaging our hearts and minds and getting charged up and ready to meet the challenges of the future. We've all been in a kind of low energy, low battery place these past several years of pandemic life, but it's time for us to get charged up and ready to figure out what's next and ready to meet what's next together. Okay, thank you. So in your view, what is the key to stewardship? to how we pledge our treasure and our talents to us. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a door with a lot of locks, right? But one of the main keys is taking the time to talk to each other and to remember what Wes means to all of us. So those can be memories about personal experiences at Wes, a time when the community supported you or when you had a really good time here. But it can also be about Wes's impact on the world around us, the way that we get to participate in building culture here in Washington, D.C., in Maryland, and really around the country. Yeah, which is part of the history of West. Yeah. So lastly, what's at stake for us at West this year? Yeah, well, as you know, and as I imagine most people watching know, we're in a bit of a financial crisis right now. Things are difficult and looking scary. 
And what we're trying to bring into the pledge campaign this year, into stewardship this year, really, is confidence that we can, in fact, meet the challenges, that we can do scary things together, mm -hmm. and that when we work together, even stuff that is scary or feels really hard can actually be pretty easy and a lot of fun. Sounds good. So folks, remember, when your pledge stuff comes, send it in early, be an early bird pledger, and yay for Wes and yay for us. us. Yay us. That was my two minutes of fame. <laughs> I don't think this is on. It is. No, it is. Oh, you. okay. So this is the beginning of pledge season. And all of your information is going to be coming soon. And I want to invite each and all of you, those of you out there and those of you in here, if it strikes you, if it hits you sometime during a platform in the next few weeks, to share what Casey was talking about, your experience of Wes, what, what gets you here? What brought you here? What means Wes to you? Please come up and share that. And thank you for all your pledges. It's really gonna count this year. Bye. <laughs>a longtime West member at this point. I've been at West for 18 years, all my life. And like Flores said, West has meant a lot to me. And I wanna to talk to all of you about a little of what that means to me. Um, my parents um, had been going to West for quite a while before I was born. And so they had been deeply enmeshed in the community. And when I was born, I was thrown right into that. And as I've grown up through all of the stages of my personhood and developing who I think I am in this world, I have had a community surrounding me and supporting my exploration of who I want to be, what I want my impact to be on my community, and um, what I want my craft to be. I um, I'm, I'm a creative. I plan to pursue um, a creative field. And Wes has taught me how to imbue what I do with the things I believe, being a good person and really considering your own impact on the people around you and not just the people you care about, but the people you don't know. And throughout that, Wes has really helped guide me where I have questions and really been a second family. And that's why Wes has meant so much to me over these last 18 years. All right. So moving forward, today's story for all ages is by A.A. A. Milne with imagery by Ernest H. Shepard. Today was a difficult day, said Pooh. There was a pause. Do you want to talk about it? Asked Piglet. No, said Pooh after a bit. No, I don't think I do. That's okay, said Piglet. 
and he came and sat beside his friend. What are you doing? asked Pooh. Nothing really, said Piglet, only I know what a difficult day, I know what difficult days are. Like, I quite often don't feel like talking about it on my difficult days either. But goodness, continued Piglet, difficult days are so much easier when you know you've got someone there for you. And I'll always be there for you, Pooh. And as Pooh sat there, working through his head, his difficult day, while the solid, reliable piglet sat beside him quietly, swinging his little legs, he thought that his best friend had never been more right. Let us enter now the centering time of our platform. Each week we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. I am particularly mindful of the growing number of overdoses in Montgomery County and across the nation caused by substances laced with deadly fentanyl. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and to the world around us. Let us open our hearts to compassion for those who suffer. And let us commit ourselves to the work that calls for our love. I invite you in this time of meditation to be still and to reflect. Begin by taking a full deep breath and exhale any tension. Adjust your posture, stretching and releasing so that your body is at ease. And breathe. You may close your eyes or soften your gaze. Let your mind slow down and breathe. From this place of quiet, reflect on these words from Dr. Orisha Bowers. Somebody lied to me several times, senselessly told me that I was nothing. They said I was a nobody, somewhere between the nothing and the nobody. I believed them. Trust, I trusted what they said to me more than I trusted what I knew. Who are they? Why would I believe them? They are not the absolute truth. 
So I must forgive myself for believing lies about myself. No more days shall come where I believe their report over mine. So breathe out the lies and breathe in your self-truth. Breathe out doubt and breathe in forgiveness. Breathe. We continue our meditation in silence and in the music that follows.
Today's reading is For Those Who Are Gone by Minister Blythe Barno, who is our speaker today. My love, my sibling, my parent, my friend, family. You are family to me. Your perfection is not required, it never was. Not to love you, not to grieve you. You are and have always been worthy. We know the truth of you, your love, your contradictions, your challenge. We know your laughter and hurt and hope. We carry you with us even now. So today we call you by your name. It is beloved. Today we allow ourselves to love you fully. Today we allow ourselves to grieve you honestly. We miss you and we know that your life was worth saving. No matter your choices or your struggle, we miss you because grief is born of knowing. May your memory be a flame for the way forward, compelling us to act, proclaiming loudly that every life is worth saving and all loss is worthy of our grief. This morning, our platform speaker is remotely, is joining us remotely via Zoom. Minister Blythe Barno is the founder and director of HEAL Ohio, where she works to bring people together to end the racist war on drugs. She's a preacher, harm reductionist, writer and community organizer. She's the founder of Feminary, an online ministry, and works to establish um, harm reduction resources for faith-based communities. She has brought her worship service, Naloxone Saves, to several states. She serves on the national leadership team for showing up for racial justice, Surge, S-U-R-J, and leads the Harm Reduction and Overdose Prevention Network for the, Heart, the Heartland Conference of the United Church of Christ. Hey, everybody. So good to be with you all today. Thank you for that warm introduction, Levi. I was 20 on the day of Kachi's funeral. A week earlier, he had overdosed in a motel room and he died a few days later in a local hospital. He was one of my first big loves. We sat quiet and still in the church where his funeral was being held. And the pastor's words echoed through us when he condemned Kachi at his own funeral. It echoed through us when he condemned us as well. Many of the people I shared a pew with that day died in the years that followed. And I believe the shame and condemnation from that pastor helped to kill them. I went to far too many funerals where clergy condemned the people I love. And I knew with 100% clarity that my people deserved better. So being slightly defiant, I went to seminary 
and became a minister myself. Last year, we lost over 100,000 people to a fatal overdose in this country. And what's worse is that we know that many of those deaths were preventable, which is a grief that is sometimes too heavy to bear. Harm reduction, which we're talking about today, is a set of practical strategies and ideas aimed at minimizing the negative health, social, and legal impacts associated with drug use and drug laws. It focuses on supporting holistic, positive change and on supporting people without judgment, coercion, discrimination, or requiring that they stop using drugs as a precondition of our support. Simply put, it's meeting people where they're at and supporting them and keeping themselves as safe, healthy, and connected as possible without the condition of their sobriety. Harm reduction redefines what recovery means. It redefines it as any positive change because we understand that change is a process. So if you use a little less, that's an act of recovery. If you use sterile injection equipment, that's an act of recovery. If you wait to pick up until after the rent's paid, that's an act of recovery. If you're completely abstinent, that's an act of recovery. Naloxone, which is also sometimes called by a brand name Narcan, is a medication that blocks the, the effects of opiates like heroin, fentanyl, oxycontin, and carfentanyl. Its ability to block opiates means that it can be used to stop or reverse an opiate overdose. Last year across the country, grassroots harm reduction advocates distributed over a million doses of naloxone. Collectively, they've helped to save countless lives. And just to say, those lives were not saved by police or paramedics. They were saved by people who use drugs. When given easy access to naloxone, the vast majority of overdose reversals are completed by people who use drugs because they are the true first responders to this overdose crisis. Community naloxone distribution in the United States was started in the 90s by a man named Dan Big. He ran the Chicago Recovery Alliance alongside other people who use drugs, and he saw no reason why this medication that had been used in the hospital since the 70s could not also be used in the community. So he found a sympathetic doctor and he began to move the medication from the hospital to the street. His work embodies the true spirit of harm reduction. Leaders with lived experience redirecting resources to those who are most targeted by harm. This life-saving work that we so often associate with police or health departments are actually, was actually developed by people who use drugs. And that's important, so I'm gonna say it again. <laughs> this life-saving work that we often associate with police or health departments was actually developed by people who use drugs. Naloxone distribution, fentanyl testing strips, 
sterile injection equipment distribution, safe consumption sites, safer smoking supplies. These are all interventions that were created by people who use drugs in order to save and improve their lives and the lives of their, those in their community. Because contrary to what we're often told, people who use drugs value their lives and value the lives of those in their community. The founders of harm reduction understood that to truly reduce harm, we must address the systemic harms that are trickling down into individual lives. We must shift power and resources to those who, are, who need the most and know the most from lived experience. People who use drugs are the leaders of our work to end overdose. So we ought not villainize, but instead listen and learn from them. Unfortunately, the United States has not yet learned from the harm reductionist example or their generosity. In this country, we tend to be stingy with naloxone access, overzealous in policing and criminalization, and limited in our access to community-based healthcare programs for people who use drugs like quality methadone clinics and peer-run syringe service programs. Very little of what we've been doing at a national level to address this overdose crisis is evidence-based. For example, the Center for Disease Control affirms that syringe service programs can reduce new HIV and hepatitis C infections by 50%, and that new users of these programs are five times more likely to enter treatment and three times more likely to stop using drugs altogether than those who don't enter these programs. Yet the county that I live in here in Ohio banned them outright. This is why our country continues to lose over 100,000 people a year to largely preventable deaths. We simply aren't adequately equipping people with the tools they need to survive. Now, I have to confess, it may sound all well and good, <laughs> but I did not come to this movement easily. In fact, I kind of came kicking and screaming sometimes literally screaming. About 13 years ago, I was asked by my mentor, Maria Chavez, to prepare a workshop on harm reduction for the domestic violence agency that we both used to work for. I told her very clearly that she had the wrong girl. I knew it was my job to lead trainings, but I told her it was very unlikely that I would be able to do the topic any justice because I simply didn't believe in the approach. But the truth is, I was angry, which is really to say I was scared. I didn't want drugs anywhere near people that I cared about because I wanted the people I love to live. And I didn't want drugs anywhere near me because drugs and danger had often been connected in my life. Drugs meant the danger of losing my housing, my food, my physical safety. But just as pressing, drugs meant grief, worry, loss. And I was already so tired. 
So as a good mentor does, she nodded, understood where I was coming from, and then told me to do it anyway. She knew the baggage I was carrying, but she also knew that I deserved to be free of it. She understood what was keeping me from compassion, but she also knew that our clients deserved better. So I read up and I did the presentation the best I could and it was not good. <laughs> Talk about the importance of meeting people where they're at, but not leaving them there. I'm a better person today because Maria did just that for me. After Kachi died, I was filled with a unique kind of fury. I was so angry that he was gone. I blamed him for using. I blamed myself for not saving him. I blamed his parents for their theology. But most acutely, I blamed the person that had been with him that night that he overdosed, who was a friend of mine. Because when he began to overdose, they left him. But 10 years later, when I first started working at the National Harm Reduction Coalition, that person died of an overdose too. It wasn't until then that I began to understand that it wasn't individual bad choices that killed the people I cared for. It was a systemic issue. It was the system that was bad. For example, I didn't know that naloxone even existed until 10 years after Kachi died. But I trust that if they'd had it on hand, they would have used it that night. And in hindsight, I can see that the person who left him did so because they were an only parent, a single parent, and they were the primary provider for their family. They couldn't afford to go to jail and they didn't want their kid put into the system. But I trust that if a comprehensive and trustworthy Good Samaritan law had been in place, that person wouldn't have left him that night. Even so, it took me 10 years to remember that as soon as that person left, they'd called an ambulance. They simply didn't arrive in time. My friend that left wasn't callous. They were trapped. I trust that if our policies and our society had treated either of them like their lives were valuable, that they might both still be alive today. One of the deepest regrets of my life is that I know I added to the shame and stigma that each of them carried. I didn't know any better. I grew up in a family that was deeply impacted by chaotic substance use. And I was told that abstinence was the only way out of that hurt. I was told that recovery required willpower and that supporting people I love only fueled their disease. I was told that people who use drugs were untrustworthy and dangerous. I was told that my love had to be tough. I thought I was doing the right thing. But when I found out there was another way, 
I was overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and regret that I'm still recovering from. Learning about harm reduction and naloxone also meant sitting with the reality that the people I love died for no reason. It also meant feeling like I could have done more to prevent their deaths. And so I was left feeling like their deaths were in part my fault. This is what happens when we leave harm reduction interventions out of public discourse, or we create barriers to things like naloxone, fentanyl testing strips, sterile injection equipment, and safe consumption sites. We lose brilliant and wonderful people for no reason. And we force families and loved ones to shoulder an unbearable weight of regret that ultimately they're not responsible for. It's cruel, it's unjust, and it's fixable. Growing up in a white working class town in Northeast Ohio, I watched as my friends feverishly worked to obtain the American dream. A dream that felt promised to us, even if not consciously, largely because we were white. As white people, we were told that this country works for us. So when we couldn't pull ourselves out of the struggle and poverty that shaped our day to day, we didn't think the system failed us. We thought we failed ourselves. And I watched as that feeling of failure, which is rooted in white supremacy, tricked people I love into believing they were unworthy. A pain they sought to ease with substance use, which without access to harm reduction supplies and information, ultimately claimed many of their lives. We live in a time where white youth are being leveraged against communities of color, just as white women were in the civil rights era. A desire to protect the virtue, purity and abstinence of white youth is fueling the violent policing and mass incarceration of people of color, as well as dehumanizing immigration policy at our borders. The subtext always being that people of color are responsible for the production and sale of drugs and are therefore a threat to innocent white children. Some of us might be familiar with the so-called war on drugs. Maybe it conjures up images of eggs in a frying pan or the phrase, just say no. What most of us don't know is that the war on drugs dates back to the 1930s and beyond and began as a racist attack on black and immigrant communities. The first anti-opium laws in the 1870s were an attack on Chinese migrants after white men feared losing their railroad jobs. Black men in the South were the target of the first anti-cocaine laws in the early 1900s using rhetoric that cocaine led black men to assault white women. And Mexican migrants and Mexican Americans were the target of the first anti-marijuana laws in this country in the 1910s and 20s. In fact, that's why we use the word marijuana in this country 
instead of cannabis because it sounded more Mexican and supported the criminalization of Mexican migrants as drug dealers and criminals, words that we still hear from our politicians today. The original architect of the war on drugs was a man by the name of Harry Anslinger. He was the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and a known white supremacist. Targeting communities of color, especially Black Americans, with drug charges and harassment was part of Anslinger's strategy to justify the existence and the budget of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. In fact, Anslinger targeted famous singer Billie Holiday for her song Strange Fruit, which protested the lynching of Black Americans. Anslinger demanded she stop performing the song. And when she refused, he retaliated by regularly arresting her on drug charges and placing her under surveillance for decades, even going so far as raiding her hospital room and handcuffing her to the hospital bed as she lay dying. To be clear, Billie Holiday was not put under surveillance because her drug use was a threat but because she dared to resist white supremacy. This racist drug war continues to target black communities. We see it in the murder of Breonna Taylor, who was killed in her bed by police who were executing a no-knock warrant on suspected drug charges. We see it when the police officer who murdered George Floyd looked casually around and said, this is why you don't do drugs, kids. In 1971, President Nixon formally declared a war on drugs. In 1992, John Ehrlichman, one of Nixon's top advisors, offered a candid reflection on the foundation of this so-called war. He said, quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left, and Black people. You understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or Black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the Blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did, he concluded. Criminalization, racism, and white supremacy are the foundations of our drug policy in this country. And every year it costs Americans, particularly Black Americans, their lives, and their freedom. We can see it clearly. White people are more likely to sell drugs and all races use drugs at similar rates. But in 2020, the over was nearly seven times that of white men and black Americans are incarcerated five times more than whites are. Racism and white supremacy fuels our understanding of drug use which fuels policing, which fuels mass incarceration, 
which fuels overdose death. When the movement for Black Lives demands that we defund the police, they are asking in part for an end to this war, a war whose purpose and budget was grown out of anti-Blackness, xenophobia, coercion, and violence. Budgets are moral documents. And when many of our cities spend a third of its budget on policing or more, we're saying that we value systems of punishment and surveillance over systems of care and connection. Instead, the movement for Black Lives is asking for us to deepen our moral imagination and ask what we really want. Do we want no-knock warrants? Or do we want neighborhoods made safe by abundance? Made safe through enough food to eat, enough homes in which to sleep, enough money for rent and leisure, enough helping hands. The movement for Black Lives is asking that our budgets match our morals. They're reminding us that when we reject fear and white supremacy, we all have enough. Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, how'd we get here? <laughs> I thought we were talking about overdose. And let me assure you, we are. After all, when Kachi began to overdose in that hotel room, it was drug policy rooted in racism that kept the person who was with him from calling for help, afraid that both would be incarcerated instead of assisted. Because Black lives didn't matter, their life didn't matter. A legacy of anti-Blackness and anti-immigrant policy left over 100,000 people to die a preventable death last year. Harm reduction is a deep, deep commitment to the health and well-being of our communities, even if our laws haven't caught up to us yet. It means we don't allow people to suffer or die preventable deaths. Harm reduction asks us to combat shame and stigma, which means that we must understand that a person is always, always more than their drug use, and that distilling a person down to just one thing about them is a violation of their humanity. And anyway, in my experience, Often a person's substance use is actually the least interesting thing about them. We have to go deeper. We have to know more. We must also understand that not all people who use drugs are addicted to drugs. In fact, many aren't. And even if a person is navigating addiction, they are more than just an addict. Notice, I haven't called anyone an addict in our time together. Dignity demands person-first language, so I speak about people who use drugs. Dehumanization of people who use drugs is a legacy of racism inherent in the drug war, and we must conscientiously object. Harm reduction is a reclaiming of our individual and our collective dignity. It is a form of great respect. 
harm reduction asks us to understand and transform the systems that are causing harm and putting people at risk. Systems like white supremacy. Talking about white supremacy and racial justice is not a secondary issue in ending the overdose crisis. And it's not an issue that only impacts communities of color, though they're the primary targets. Harm reduction requires the tough work of reclaiming dignity. And white supremacy is a collective wound to our dignity. Ignoring it in this work leaves behind a key aspect of both harm reduction and overdose prevention. So that's a lot. So just to recap, basically, Harm reduction is a common sense approach to drugs and drug use that doesn't look away from the reality of what people are facing. And because it's a common sense approach to drugs and drug use, people who actually use or have used drugs are the common sense leaders. The tricky part, no matter how we come to this work and this movement, is that harm reduction requires us to engage our own healing. Many of us come to this understanding after experiencing loss, trauma, or isolation. And harm reduction asks us to have a systemic understanding of our deeply personal pain. It can be hard. Harm reduction is a radical act of love. It demands our vulnerability, which I know is your topic for this month. It asks us to forgive ourselves and forgive each other. It calls us to healing and demands justice. Harm reduction means that everybody is worthy of unconditional love and nobody gets left behind, not even us. Thank you so much, Blythe. In a few moments, we will have our community sharing time when you can write into the chat or share in person about what resonated with you in this platform. While we listen to today's musical response, you might prepare by reflecting on a personal experience or an activity here at West that the platform brings to mind. Oh uh -huh. 
This is the time when we add our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform or what resonates with our personal experiences. For online participants, I invite you to share in the Zoom chat or in the comments if you are watching the recording later. If you are here in person, you can come up to the microphone here on the floor and share brief comments so that others may share as well. I will start by reading some initial Zoom comments. Sarah Morris says, thank you for the informative talk on such an important topic. It's looking like either my Wi-Fi isn't great or people are being shy this morning and don't are having some introspective reactions. So for the moment, I will open up to in-person commenters. For commenters in the hall, please begin by stating your name and if you feel comfortable, your pronouns as well. And please make sure to keep your comments brief, perhaps no more than a minute or two, so that all who want have an option to share. My name is Peter Bishop, uh, he, him, his. Um, so I love this, the way the whole issue of harm reduction was presented to us. To my way of thinking, they made a very powerful argument in favor of all of the harm reduction strategies that they were talking about. Um, however, we have to deal with the politics of the moment. And as she was starting to explain the racism behind the opposition to harm reduction, that's very useful for us to understand. But we need to be a little careful about using those arguments in the larger political sphere, and especially in saying that this should be related to uh, defunding the police. Because one of the things we've realized in the politics of the moment is that the politics of using the term defund the police is counterproductive. It does not result in things that we want to have happen. It, it opposes us, actually. And so uh, that aspect of it, although um, I believe that she was trying to reach out to those for whom that is an important concept, because there are some of our friends who really think of that as something that's important. Um, and uh, uh, it's just that uh, having been involved in national politics, uh, I've become very aware of the, the importance of doing it. Also, uh, in, in gun safety is another place. We want gun safety, not gun control, right, for similar reasons. Thank you. Shayla, she, hers. It's a complicated topic. I'm really interested in. I was really interested to hear this. Um, I was trying to help someone who was homeless and who I re later realized was a um, person who was using drugs, you know, too much. And uh, so the the my help seemed to be unhelpful. And you know, after a while, I had to stop helping this person. But I guess the, on the bright side, I helped this person for about a, a year. And maybe in that year, I, I saved his life. Like, who knows what could have happened? And now he, the next person can help. 
And you know, hopefully, if we all help a little bit, we can we can help. And also, another thing I want to mention is um, we were talking about community and connectedness. Is how you know you can it's like the opposite of addiction. And uh, so last night I was at a West auction event, and we had a wonderful gathering of some a few people from West. So that kind of thing. Let's do more of it. Let's get back to the potlucks. Let's have community connectedness and be connected to each other and help each other in all those ways. Uh, uh, my name's Abby, she, her. I particularly appreciated the um, connection between healing ourselves and being ready to engage in harm reduction type policies. And um, I'm going to try to stitch this together, but it, I may not do a good job, so bear with me. So I grew up with a you know, successful middle-class family from the outside, but from the inside, what I will tell you is that both my parents drank too much and smoking killed my mother. She was an addict to nicotine. And the, she herself had a history of trauma. She lost her mother when she was five. And her father, who was the constant in her life, himself had a history of trauma. His father killed himself and he had to give up a scholarship to MIT to support his family after he cleaned his father's brains off the wall. So it is easy for the things that I felt I did not have when I was a child. It is easy to blame the tools that my parents used to um, manage their pain. It is harder to recognize their flaws and harder still to recognize that those flaws deserve my compassion rather than my rage. And it all comes from starting with having compassion for myself, which is the hardest thing. Uh, my name is Jenna. What? Higher. How's this? Better? Great. This is why I don't do this. Uh, <laughs> um, I use she, her pronouns. Uh, I wanted to take Laura up on her offer to spontaneously come up during the next several platforms and talk about why we're at Wes. And today was a beautiful example of why I decided to check out this community. I think Blythe did a great job of connecting different concepts together that kind of resonated with why I stick around and why I'm still exploring this thing we're doing. Um, and the main two I want to highlight, because it's really one, which is practice. Practicing a community of abundance, practicing a community where shame and isolation that lead to like this system of, of shame and isolation that is the norm that lead to people turning to um, drugs or violence and lead to uh, this fear that we have that I think causes us to hang on to this idea of police, um, which I'm so glad we're talking about today. It's like a perfect um, connection. So please stick around for that conversation. So anyway, I see Wes as a place where we as a smaller group practice a different kind of community. 
um, where we can combat some of those norms. Um, so thanks. Hi, I am Dana. I use she and they pronouns. Um, yeah, I am co-facilitating the conversation about reimagining safety beyond police this afternoon at 1230 in the social hall. Um, but I just wanted to say I very much appreciated Blythe's invitation to imagining uh, what might we have instead. And I feel like that that is a, a visceral thing that we need to be able to actually see in our mind and hold on to, because that is how we can <clears throat> respond to the inevitable ba inevitable backlash that there will be when we suggest radical changes to the way things that currently are. I don't agree that saying defund the, the police is a bad idea. I think we actually need to go farther and actually say abolish the police because it is one of the key planks of that. Um, and then have responses for what we do instead. We're not going to get rid of uh, white supremacy by not talking about it. And so this is part of that whole interconnected strategy. So um, the conversation this afternoon is not about the policy discussion. It's about trying to hold on and, and envision what that community might look like together. Good morning. My name is Andre Lee. I just started coming to West maybe like uh, four weeks ago when you had this, the Winter Solstice. Yeah, please. All right. Thanks a lot. I think we better. Appreciate it. Uh, real quick, um, I was a, a, an addiction counselor for Whitman Walker Clinic. It was a really interesting program where clients, call them clients, would stay at a house for about six months. And these people were, I guess you could call them quadruply diagnosed. Uh, they suffered from mental illness, the chemical addiction, they were homeless, and they were HIV positive. So they had a lot going on. At the end of their six months, they were supposed to write a, a tome about their life and their experience so everyone coming to the program would have access to it. They would leave it there and each person would get to see it and get to, to relate. I, uh, I couldn't relate. None of that was in my life. The addiction, the mental illness, the homelessness, I could not relate at all to what anyone there was going through. And it, it didn't in, impede my ability to provide counseling for them. It didn't do that, but it did impede my ability to be empathetic because this was 2000. Until then, people who were addicted to drugs weren't given a whole lot of sympathy. The way that it was dealt with usually is with a lot of shame because, I mean, it's criminalized. I can understand the idea about the police being involved in this conversation because it's criminal. It's bad and criminals are bad. And if you're addicted to drugs and you use drugs, you're bad. And I grew up with that also. But being there and 
at, at that six month period and they had to tell, they had to sit in front of everyone, staff, other clients to go through, to go through their lives. Some people were young in their twenties, some were older in their sixties. So imagine you're 60 years old and you have to go through all of this again in front of people. Right now you're thinking that's horrible, but for them, it was awesome. It was such a huge, it was a boulder off of their backs. And what they really got from it was the shame. They didn't feel the shame at that point that they have been feeling all their lives. So if you can, if you're ever get involved with or think about, you know, someone who is experiencing addiction, um, please emphasize to them that shame isn't what they should be working with. And shame is what you should be working with either because that's not going to help. But sympathy, empathy, and compassion and caring is what will help. Hi, I'm Karen Per Purs, and I want to really thank Blythe for actually helping me piece together some things that I have lived with in my own family system that I didn't understand how they were connected. Um, and I will say it was because my uncle, um, who was actually also a counselor for people who use drugs, um, also was himself a drug user. And, um, and he also was black. And so it, within my own family, there were those complicating factors around the first person of color that was part of our direct family, at least in the known immediacy of the future, of the, of the real time. And, um, and the, I'm sure the struggles that he felt within our own family as being the first person of color and um, his drug use and saw the way that the system um, created a schism in that, you know, because of his drug use, my aunt felt that she needed to separate from him to protect her children, to protect her assets, you know, things like that, that were definitely driven by the system because she continued to be very much in a loving relationship with him. And how weird is that kind of dynamic? Um, but the ways in which his own struggles, um, both personal and systemic led to his, his overdose as well. And, um, and the shame that our, has continued to exist within our family because of that experience. Dr. Siebens, um, I, I thought it would be good for somebody to actually talk about an actual case. Uh, so, um, my wife had two good friends when we lived in Connecticut for a few years, and one of them was uh, Polish and uh, couldn't have children and desperately wanted to adopt a child from Poland. And she did at great effort. And um, over the years, the kid grew up and was a user. I don't think she was addicted, but I don't know. Anyway, uh, we very occasionally go to Connecticut and we did visit 
her, uh, Linda's friend. And um, it turned out uh, her husband had just died, I think. He was much older. He was in his 90s. She in her 70s. But the daughter, I think immediately after the father died, I hope he did, he was dead by then. But anyway, she overdosed. Uh, and uh, going back through the time, we were staying at her mother's house that night when she OD'd. So it's rough stuff and, and a feeling of helplessness, helplessness all around. So I will check Zoom once more. Um, I thank everyone who has spoken in person. It looks as though I am having some connectivity issues. So I haven't seen all comments that have been said, but Barbara Nathanson says, thank you for sharing your journey related to harm reduction. It was very interesting. I gained insight about what harm reduction means, the history and how I may be able to make a difference. Jan says, I regret that I'm not at West itself for this. If anyone is interested in learning more, recovery coaching programs offer courses in this. And while it's not traditionally the place of the officiant, I just do want to say that as a student, a high schooler in Montgomery County, Maryland, I have personal connections with people who have students who have overdosed because of fentanyl and their use of drugs. And not only do people of all ages struggle with their drug use, but so do incredibly young people. And that this stretches the breadth of humanity and being aware of this um, is incredibly important, especially now. So as we have all shared our perspectives, in this community, so too, do we share resources and gifts. Here at West, we split all undesignated gifts in the Sunday collection between our operating budget and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. HIPS promotes the health, rights, and dignity of individuals and communities impacted by sexual exchange and or drug use due to co coercion, choice, and circumstance. HIPS provides compassion, harm reduction services, advocacy, and community engagement that is respectful, non-judgmental, and affirms and honors individual power and agency. They engage sex workers, drug users, and our communities in challenging structural barriers to health, safety, and prosperity. HIPS offers syringe exchange, condom distribution, overdose prevention supplies, as well as mental health support. Access to housing and substance, uh, housing and substance use treatment in a client-centered harm reduction environment as well. Multiple support groups occur daily and include refreshments. Clients can drop into the center Monday through Friday for showers and laundry access to clo a clothing closet, and to get connected with HIPS services. So let's take a moment to prepare to respond to the invitation to generosity. For those who are able to respond, we offer several options, as noted on the screen. 
The number to give by text is 202-335-1885. And you can donate online via tiny.cc slash westgives or by clicking on give on our website, ethicalsociety.org. You can also place a cash or check in the basket at the back of the hall on your way out or send it in by mail. We thank you for your generosity and we will now receive your gifts and the gifts of music. so much to the many people who have helped create this morning's time together. Our senior leader, Casey Slack, and staff members, Indara Miles, Robin Kravitz, Tamana Barangi, and Maceo Thomas. Minister Blythe Barno, guest musicians, Laura Weiss, Brian Seeger, and Minnie Vandals, and music coordinator, Leah Morris. And our platform production team, tech team members, slide artists, Zoom chat usher, and in-person greeters, whose names you'll see in the closing credits slide. At the conclusion of the platform, please join us for social hour, either here in person or via Zoom. First though, I want to mention a few things upcoming in the life of our community. The West Chorus will not be rehearsing next Wednesday, March 8th. However, starting March 15th, the chorus will begin preparing to sing for Wes's Spring Festival on April 30th. This is a great opportunity to contribute to a festive occasion. And if you'd like more information, please contact Perry Bider, who will be back on March 5th. Or you can show up here at 7.30 p.m. on Wednesday, March 15th. Did you know that Wes has an improv group? It now meets the first Tuesday of the month from 7.30 to 8.30. So they welcome you to join the silliness this Thursday, March 7th at 7.30 p.m. As previously mentioned during sharing time, today at 12.30 in the social hall, you can join Kate Lang and Dana Pope 
for reimagining safety beyond policing, a facilitated conversation about what keeps us safe and what it would mean to defund and abolish the police. Bring your questions and thoughts and be prepared to challenge your assumptions. Finally, the Wes at Work co-working space is available in the social hall every weekday from nine to five. That is for people who are working remotely, but would like a break from looking at the same four walls at home. If you're available to take a turn to volunteer as a host for this, please see Thursday's news and notes uh, for the link to the Sign of Genius page. That is all for my announcements today. And as always, you can find this information about opportunities to connect in the Sunday links or news and notes emails and on the calendar page of Wes's website, ethicalsociety.org. I thank you all for being part of Platform today, whether in person, by Zoom, or watching later. I now invite you to join in singing our song of the month. A couple more invitations before we'd head out. If you are new to our community, please send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, and introduce yourself. For those who wish to socialize online to reach virtual coffee hour, point your browser to tiny.cc slash westconnect, or West Coffee Hour. That's a different link. <laughs> and now, please join me in our closing words for the month. Let us go out into the week ahead with compassion, understanding, and commitment 
being brave and compassionate around our vulnerability and dedicating ourselves to care for the most vulnerable in our world. Again, thank you all for joining today's platform. We look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you.